sound so great singing this morning. You may be seated. Um, so at this time, we have our kids coming to share a special song with us. And while they're getting up here, I wanted to share something with you. So, you know, Easter's a great time for us to come together and celebrate what God has done. But as we know, some people don't believe, and some people struggle with doubts at this, at this time. And, and so we're going to sing a song about what we believe. But I wanted to read a couple things out of this book, The Case for Christ. I know a lot of you have read it. Um, it's, a, it's a great book about just our faith becoming real and the, the evidences for it. And so, um, you know, some people, some people out there doubt the resurrection. And, you know, I wanted to read a couple of sentences about that um, from, from some experts who have studied the, the facts, the history. Here's one. Even the more skeptical historians agree that for primitive Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was a real event in history, the very foundation of faith. The appearances of Jesus are as well authenticated as anything in antiquity. There can be no rational doubt that they occurred. And so I just, I wanted to share that this morning because it's important for us to realize that we don't just have a blind faith. We have a faith that's based on, on facts, um, on historical evidence. And if we seek these things, we will find. So with that, we invite you to join all of us in, in singing this next song. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified forgiveness is in you descended into darkness you rose in glorious life forever seated high well i just uh, want to welcome you all to creekside church we're really Glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. I want to say thanks to each of you who have taken time out of your weekend to spend Easter Sunday with us. We're grateful for your presence with us. And if you're here and you're a guest for the very first time, we want to extend a special welcome to you. And if you would see one of our folks out at the welcome table when you leave, uh, you can get a nice little uh, mug and a little thermos thing here. We'd appreciate you stopping by. We just thank you for coming and joining us this morning. Also, I want to just uh, invite you to consider how you might connect with us at Creekside Church every Wednesday night. We have a whole host of activities for all ages from nursery on up through adults. We have a men's Bible study, a women's Bible study. We have uh, children's ministries and youth ministries that take place starting at 5.30 with a meal that's a free will offering. No expense, no cost to you unless you want to give to help for it and then the activities get started. There's a prayer meeting at 5.45 and then the, the meal, the meal, then the prayer meeting and then activities get going. So, And then we also have a bunch of small, we have small groups that are going so if you want to uh, connect with us you can look on our Facebook page, the information's in the bulletin. And as a guest when the offering plate goes by, uh, we didn't invite you here to pad our offering so all we'd ask you to put in the offering plate is there's a little tear-off sheet on the bulletin if you would just fill that out if you want us to connect with you further we'd love to do that and then put that in the offering plate that's all we'd ask that you'd put in the offering plate for us this morning I have a couple of things that I want to call to our church family's uh, attention first of all a week or so ago we took up a special offering for one of our missionaries that was uh, the, the Richards, and we raised $3,300, so we really praise God for that, and uh, we're excited that God, yeah, we are praising God for that, yeah, yeah. 
For those who are guests, uh, this couple had a shipping container that was uh, en route and the government of the country automatically then suddenly put on a tariff and then it was accruing uh, interest as it was in the port. And so we raised some money to help them because they had to spend money to get that out of there. And then yesterday we had a great day. I want to thank Alec and Annie uh, Packer for coordinating and organizing our Easter egg hunt. We had about 300, over 300 people here, 150 kids and uh, about 150 adults. And they were, uh, we had 6,000 eggs spread out all over the property. And we had a, a great time uh, sharing the, the good news of the resurrection and talking about how we can be delivered from our own sin by looking at some hard-boiled eggs. So that was an interesting little discussion we had. And then we had a, got a lot of good fun. So we're grateful for that and the opportunity. I would just like you uh, to, to pray with me before we spend a little bit of time in, in God's Word this morning. Father, on this Easter Sunday, I, I thank you that we uh, believe in the resurrection and in uh, Jesus, your Son, Lord, Heavenly Father, and how he rose from the dead. And we celebrate this as a, a reality uh, that has impact for all of eternity and for every individual. And I ask now that as we spend time in your word, that you would open it up to us and speak to our hearts as you see fit for each of us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, earlier this week, uh, the folks from Paris and around the world were stunned by what happened at uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. So I want you to see that uh, there's a tragic uh, thing that happened as the theater, the cathedral at Notre Dame was uh, burned, not entirely, but was a lot of damage done to it. 850 years old, can you imagine that? You see in Iowa, we, we think that's really cool if uh, like Iowa celebrated what it's sesquicentennial, 150 years, and we see farms that have been in the family for 100 years, and we think, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. And, and it is, 850-year-old church building, and much of it was destroyed. A lot of history went down there. But this morning, uh, people all over the world, in, in spite of the fact that the tragedy happened, are gathering. And some people are gathering, and they're excited to be in church on Easter. Some people are coming to church because they're being drugged here by their family and, and friends. And other people are just kind of like, maybe curious about what's going on with, with Easter and what all that is about. But this morning, as we consider the resurrection of Christ, according to Paul, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, the only basis for any good news, the only reason we would even gather this morning, is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the cathedral at Notre Dame had not suffered the damage that it did, there would have been plenty of bad news to go around. And we just open the newspaper, turn on the radio, uh, open up your Facebook, and you see lots of bad news. But if there was no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's absolutely no good news. Certainly no good news with regard to Christianity. This morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Paul makes a case for the centrality of the resurrection in declaring the good news for all people. He's made a case in, in chapters 12 through 14 about the, the use of tongues and spiritual gifts and called for clarity and communication. And now as he goes into chapter 15, he shows the importance of Christ's resurrection. 
to the gospel, to the good news, and to God's people. Before he gives a little dissertation there in the rest of chapter 15 about the implications and the applications of the resurrection. But this morning, I want us to consider the importance of the resurrection as far as good news is concerned. You see, the people at Corinth, they probably were wondering whether really Jesus actually rose from the dead. Perhaps they questioned whether they would even rise from the dead or maybe both. But if there is no resurrection, there's no good news for anybody and we might as well pack up shop. And that's what Paul makes the case later. But we're going to see how he teases out the essential nature of the resurrection and how it is essential to the good news of Christianity. And if there is no resurrection, there is no good news. But if there is a resurrection, then the only good news is found in this book through his son our Savior. I invite you to turn, uh, if you would, in your, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or your device or if you uh, want to look at the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can turn to page 815 in that Bible and you'll be there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, uh, Paul begins with these words. He says, now I make known to you Brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so also you believed." Here the Apostle Paul lays out for us three ways that Christ's resurrection is essential to the gospel. And I believe these essential ways, maybe they don't compel, that's what it says on the screen, they compel those who are skeptics or critics of the Christian faith to consider Christianity, but at least they should cause all of us to stop and look and think. And for sure, they they convince those of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior that what we're believing is not a bunch of hocus-pocus. That this is not just fabrication, this is fact that we can cling to. First of all, we see that he reveals the centrality of the gospel to the good news in three ways. First of all, the the gospel is communicated. Paul begins verse 1, he says, now I make known to you. The ESV says, I remind you, brethren, of the gospel which I preached, uh, the, the word that I preached. He'd come to them with good news. And he shared with them this good news. Now, this may be, this will be for some people, but uh, a little over a month ago, when uh, Cyclone fans saw the, the Cyclones win the Big 12 tournament, that was good news. And they had no problem making that good news known to everybody around them. 
They thought, this is good news that I want to share. Well, Paul had good news that he wanted to share. And we're going to look at the content of his good news in a moment. But before he gets to the content, he reveals the consequences. That's the second thing we see in the text. And there are actually several results of the message preached. What happened when Paul preached this gospel? Notice it says at the end of verse 1, which also you received, which means that they actually accepted it. They actually believed it. Do you believe that the cathedral at Notre Dame suffered a major fire? Why? Well, you saw a picture. Oh, so if it's on Facebook, it's true. No. If it's on the internet, it's true. No. They received it. The question for us this morning is, have you received the message of the gospel which Paul shared with the Corinthians, which we will share with you? Then he says, not only which you received, in which you stand. Now, that means this is a state or a condition that persists based upon a past action. A state or a condition in which I am based on a past action. I am my parents' child. It's a state or condition based upon a past action. Someone who receives a presidential pardon is free from the penalty of their sin based upon past action. And they remain free or exempt from the penalty for their mistakes. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I want you to look at this uh, text and, uh, up on the screen. So, Chad, can we look at uh, Romans? Yeah, there we go. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. When we put our faith or our trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross as a payment for our sins, we have been justified and we continue to be justified. It's not something that I am justified now and then I'm, that means declared righteous before God. We're not guilty. By faith, we're in a permanent condition of being at peace with God and no longer enemies who are subject to his wrath, just like those who receive the pardon. They're in a state or a condition of being exempt from the punishment for their mistakes. That's what's true of every child of God. Then thirdly, he says, by which also you are saved. Many of you may be familiar with Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, now notice this. What? What do you have to believe in your heart? that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You notice how the connection between the resurrection and salvation is made clearly in the verse. You don't believe the resurrection, you're not saved. But if you believe that Christ rose from the dead, then he says, by which you also were saved. Lord means master. I wonder this morning, if Jesus is your Lord, which means he has control over all of your life. Or if he's just a nice idea. And then if you confess with your mouth 
that he's raised from the dead. Why is that important? Because if he's not been raised from the dead, then there is no conquering of sin. Because the consequence of sin is death. And when Christ rose from the dead, he proved he had power not only over sin, but over sin's consequence, which is death. And so it's important. We're delivered from sin's power, which would keep us sinning. We're delivered from sin's penalty, which would result in our condemnation before a holy God. If you hold fast, now this is a condition he puts on you. You're saved, by which you are saved if you hold fast, which if you hang on to it. And you know, look, at Cubs fans were Cubs fans. And Cubs fans remained Cubs fans for 100 years when they didn't win the pennant and when they win, didn't win the World Series, right? How do you know if you're a Cubs fan? If you've always been a Cubs fan, if you never stop being a Cubs fan, you're a Cubs fan. He says, you know that you're saved. We know we're saved if we hold fast the confession. To hold fast what Paul taught was the result of and the evidence for genuine faith. When we hold fast, we prove we are. Those who remain Cub fans prove they are Cubs fans. Those who are children of God prove they are children of God because they remain faithful to the truths of God's word. True believers are eternally secure in God's arms. I'll never leave you or forsake you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give to them eternal life. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. My father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of, out of his hands. Now that's a paraphrase of John chapter 10. You're there. There is nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Neither height, nor depth, nor any other created being is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But here's the deal. He said, why do you give this condition then? He says, if you remain faithful to the end. The benefits received... This is what he talks about in verses 1 and 2, that you, you have received that which also you stand, in which you are saved. The benefits received are based upon the content and the credibility of the good news. If the good news is not good news, then you can believe whatever you want. I can believe I can fly, and I can crawl up, crawl up on top of the church and jump off and start flapping my arms. It doesn't matter what I believe, it's what I believe in. The benefits I received from the good news that were promised to me by an investment, if I would only invest, this is the benefits you would receive, Steve, were only as good as the promise that was made, and I found out the hard way on this particular investment that the promise made was worthless. And so the money that I put into the investment the promise, the benefit that I received was as good as the promise made. <laughs> Worthless. And so no, no kidding here, folks. If the resurrection is not true, then I don't care what the Bible promises us. It's not going to happen. But I'm here to say that the resurrection is true. And because the resurrection is true, then every benefit that's promised by those who believe is guaranteed. Is guaranteed. It's going to happen. 
And then we see that the, the gospel content comes to us in verses 3 and 4. Um, Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance. Okay, just be honest. In your own mind, what is the first importance to you today? Well, I have to feed my family. So I'm concerned about that. I didn't want to be late to church, so I was concerned about that. I really am hoping to get home early so I can enjoy the beautiful weather. That's what I'm most concerned about. Of first importance, what's going to be the most important thing you share with your people that you're around today? Paul says, I tell you what, the most important thing I could share with you was the gospel. And what is the gospel? He gives us three essential elements of the gospel. And here is, first of all, that Christ died for our sins. See, here's the deal. God is holy and just and holy and righteous, and he cannot stand before sin. But Christ came into the world so that he would pay the price for our sins. That's what the cross is all about. Christ died for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For it says, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. You get that? In our place. That he might die to sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds were healed. So he substituted for us. If you get a speeding ticket, and someone else volunteers to pay the price for the ticket, they paid it in your place. What Jesus did was he paid the price for our sins when he died on the cross. Well, what is a sin? A sin is any thought or attitude or action that's contrary to God. Oh, I'm a little jealous of the, the Lexus that I saw pulling in the parking lot. Or the Jaguar that I saw out on Hickman when I was turning in to come to church. I'm a little greedy, you know, because I, I really feel like I don't have enough. Actually, you know, I really, my kid was here for Easter egg hunting, and, and we we're only supposed to get 40 eggs, but we took 50. Uh, you know, because I'm selfish. Who's going to eat the last piece of pecan pie today? I get angry when things don't go my way. Sin. A sin. All of us are sinners. All of us are separated from God because we are born sinners and we are practical sinners. By nature and by choice, we violate God's standard. And the truth of the Bible is that, that through our idolatry and profanity and every form of sin, we deserve God's wrath because He's holy. And you know what? The world in which we live really doesn't like to hear that. In fact, you don't like to hear that. I mean, if, if I walked up to you and I said, you know, look, I noticed this about you. You like to go first in line whenever there's a, a potluck. Don't you think you're being a little selfish? You look at, well, yeah, that's the pastor. He's a holier-than-thou guy. I'm sure he thinks he's really special. But what I said is true. And it works the other way. When somebody says something to me, 
do you really think you should call people, and then I, I use this word sometimes, I'm not going to say the word because it's, it's not a profane word, but it's just a not a very endearing word. So now I use the word knucklehead. So if somebody's a knucklehead, it's, it's better than, than saying they're a word that begins with an I and ends in T and has a D and O in the middle, okay? But if you called me on that, now this really happens more in marriage, you know, you get, you get married, you're dating, and, and your, your spouse does something, and you, you're selfish. You don't like the toilet paper rolled over the top. You like it rolled under the bottom. You don't like the toothpaste tube with the tube cap off. You like it on. You don't like the hair dryer on your side of the sink or makeup dribbled down. Why isn't the makeup in their sink? It's, why is it in my sink? I don't have long hair, so why are there long hairs in my sink? And who takes hair off and sticks it on the side of the shower anyway? What is that? Well, at least it's not clogging the drain. You see, we're sinners by nature and by choice. And the Bible says that Christ died for that. Because that separates me from a holy God. And then he says this, according to the scriptures. Now here's the kicker, folks. You may think this Christianity stuff is a hocus-pocus deal, but I'm telling you what. According to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, that takes us clear back to Isaiah chapter 53. Okay? Isaiah 53 is a promise that Christ died for us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And he, God, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. That is Jesus. That's Isaiah. That's a promise that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Secondly, he was buried. He was buried. That's what it says in verse three, 4. And he was buried. Why is that important? Well, he died. But the fact that he was buried means he actually was dead. Okay. He, he laid in the tomb for three days. Well, you know, you can pretend that he, maybe he really wasn't dead. Well, we know that he was because the, the water and the, and, the, and the blood gushed out. It was a proof of death. But he was in the grave for three days. And then it says, and that was proven in the Old Testament too. You go to the book of Jonah. Or actually, you look at Matthew chapter 12. Jesus refers to Jonah and says, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be. And then the third thing that he says was, and he was raised on the third day. I want you to see Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. And Jesus saying to the disciples that he would rise from the dead. Okay? Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read it. We don't have it, I don't think. It's my bad. Matthew chapter 16, in verse 21, Jesus says this. He says, and from that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and, he, and be killed and be raised on the third day. According to the scriptures. There he goes again. Back to the Old Testament to prove that what happened in the New Testament was prophesied centuries, seven, eight hundred years before it actually happened. Goes back to Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and you can see the comparison that uh, the Apostle Peter makes in Acts chapter 2. He quotes Psalm 18 or 16, and he says, This wasn't David talking about David necessarily, David talking about 
his descendant Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through and, and, and verse 31, uh, he says this. So it's impossible for death to hold Jesus down. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. The only Christ, only Christ conquered the grave. And this is the verse, 11, John 11, verses 25 and 26. Through him we can have resurrection. I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will what? Never die. That's the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. There's no power of hell or scheme of man that can ever take us from God's hand. The gospel truths, the Christ's death, his burial and resurrection were promised in the Old Testament. So, you know, you're here this morning, you kind of, well, I've got to be here. Somebody forced me or I, I'm kind of curious. It was promised in the Old Testament. And then it was fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. So I'm thinking, I think if you're intellectually honest, you've got to do something with that. Something that was told seven, eight hundred years before it actually happened and then it actually happened. I have to do something with that. So the question I have for you this morning is, have you personally received the message that was delivered? Are you trusting in this Jesus who died for your sins, was buried, and then rose again so that you could be forgiven and have new life? If you aren't, the invitation is here to trust Christ as your Savior on Easter Sunday and to begin your new life with Him. And if you have, then there's reason to rejoice. Secondly, Christ's resurrection is confirmed by the eyewitnesses. What Paul does next is he validates the reality of the resurrection through eyewitness testimony. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of these, but the testimony of many credible witnesses provides reliable evidence for the resurrection. Cephas is the first one. You can read it in verse 5. Cephas. Who's Cephas? That's kind of a weird name. That's Peter. I mean, Peter's the guy who denied Jesus. And then Jesus appeared to Peter who had denied him. Well, that's kind of cool. Then the 12. Who's the 12? Well, yeah, okay, so it's his homies right now. All he's appeared to is the Peter and, and some of the boys, and so they can make up a good story. I mean, after all, they walked around with Jesus. Wouldn't they tell everybody that, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead to appease their conscience? But then look at verse, 50, uh, verse 6. And after that, he appeared to what? More than 500 brethren at one time. Many of whom are still here. Ah, some have fallen asleep, which means some have died. But get this. He appeared to 500 people all at one time. Now, 500 people are not having a dream, the same dream at one time. 500 people are not smoking the same stuff all at the same time and, and imagining this. And guess what? Many of those 500 people went on and died believing and for the cause that Jesus rose from the dead. And they could verify it. It could be verified. You know, two decades after Christ's resurrection, they could still have been contacted and said, Does this really happen? I mean, let's have a little eyewitness testimony. Our daughter, Shara, for a senior project in high school, had to interview or interviewed a World War II vet. Okay, and got his testimony about being on a battleship that was hit by a kamikaze, uh, a Japanese kamikaze plane, and uh, several of his uh, close associates were, were killed. 
Now, at that time, there were enough people still alive that could corroborate or invalidate that testimony. What I want to present to you this morning is that if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, there were enough people alive who could corroborate or invalidate the testimony to negate the whole thing. But he doesn't stop there. He, he goes on in James, and then all of the apostles, that's the people he walked around with, he talked with, he lived with, they all saw Jesus rise from the dead. And then in verse 8 he says, oh yeah, and by the way, there's this one guy, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul, on the road to Damascus, after Jesus had raised from the dead and been ascended into heaven, the Lord appeared to him and got a hold of him. And Paul was a hostile unbeliever. So you, know, you start out with the, the homies and, and then you move towards the most hostile and all of them testifying the same thing. It's pretty remarkable when you have that many people all testifying to the same thing. You know, okay, don't look. Don't look. Just, just, just look straight ahead. Okay? What's the color of the trim that goes around the top underneath the windows in the church? I wonder if we could get everybody here to say the same color. Well, probably not because some of us don't know what that color is, but what, what you call that color. But if we could all testify the same thing, it would validate the, the testimony that it's really true. And this is the thing that we have. It's an impressive list. Provides substantial proof that Christ's resurrection that I think if you're here and you don't believe this stuff, or you've been in church and you're skeptical of it, at least you should be intellectually honest enough to say, yeah, there's really something to that. I mean, if you have that many witnesses and they're all saying the same thing, then maybe I should at least look at it. Okay? See, the Bible is oftentimes decree, decried as, yeah, it's a bunch of holes in the Bible. There's a bunch of contradictions in the Bible. I'm telling you this morning that there's a whole lot of validation of prophecies made in the Old Testament confirmed in the resurrection is one of them, and I believe it. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no good news. But there is a resurrection, and there is good news. And if you're a believer here this morning and say, wow, this is cool. I don't believe a bunch of junk, you know? What I believe is actually true. Convinced of my faith, the credibility, of the certainty of Christ's resurrection, the, the conviction that there is power in my life because Christ rose from the dead and one day I'll join him in heaven. There's one final way that Paul makes this resurrection central to the gospel and that's Christ's resurrection changes lives. Paul becomes exhibit A. Okay, for how Christ's resurrection as a gospel reality changes lives. So not just the testimony of all these people, but the testimony of a changed life. There are four ways the gospel impacts, and the first one we see in verse 9. Read verse 9 with me. For I am, not, I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle. You notice the riches of resurrection grace. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I know I'm an apostle. I'm not ashamed of being an apostle. But I tell you what, I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. I find it interesting that he wasn't captivated by his, his guilt. You know, I mean, he'd, he'd been a persecutor of the church. He stood there while they were stoning Stephen to death. 
He wasn't captivated by his guilt or consumed by it, but he was captivated by God's mercy. Look at verse 9 again. He says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle. Folks, the apostle Paul becomes an example for all of us. He was absolutely unworthy of God's mercy. But God reached down and gave him this mercy. He wasn't just on the team. He was a key player on the team. I mean, like he was like, like, like the league MVP, even though he was the least of the apostles. I want you to look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul says this. It is a trustworthy stating, statement deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. I am foremost of all. I am foremost of all. Now, one time I was uh, asked by a friend if I would uh, participate in a uh, mini triathlon. It's where you get three people in a team and they do a triathlon. Uh, they didn't ask me. I'd be the least likely person to be asked to run the 10K. Because I, I don't run. Okay? I don't even like to run. Uh, unless I'm playing basketball. Then I like to run up and down a basketball court. That's good. I would be the least likely. You know what, folks? Every one of us here is least likely to be chosen to be on God's team because of our talent, because of our giftedness, because of our goodness, because of our greatness, because of our intellect, because of our generosity, because of our compassion, because you put the, you put the fill in the blank. We are least likely to be called. That's the riches we're desperately unworthy to be on the team. And we see the rescue of God's resurrection grace in, in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what it, What is grace? Grace is an undeserved gift. It's an unmerited favor. Every warning ticket you have is a gift of grace. Kids, every meal you eat at home is a gift of grace. You don't deserve it. Now, okay, maybe you can argue with me on that one. But Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what God gave Paul, the undeserved gift of pardon from his sin as a persecutor of the church and position as an apostle. The glory of God's grace is his choice of the undeserving. And I want to make a case for you this morning, to you this morning, that every one of us is absolutely undeserving of God's grace. And I know some of you are, you know, very godly people and very saintly people. But I know that you are not perfect people. And I am not perfect people. I proved it the other day at Awanas. I, I told some kid to... Be quiet, only I didn't say the use word be quiet. You know? Okay, guilty. But God chose me. We sang that song, and it is God who chooses. It's God who picks us out when we are the worthless. You've been on the PE team where they're picking teams, and it's like, 
Oh, no, they're going to pick me, you know. You know, none of us is worthy, but God rescues us from our unworthiness. I like what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because what he considered me faithful, putting me into service. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have been put into service for the King. And if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I think he's calling you to put you into service. And I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Some of you care about this, some of you don't, but Tiger Woods won his fifth Masters golf tournament. His fifth Masters. And what makes this remarkable is that he has gone through extensive personal pain, extensive, uh, you know, uh, divorce and ugly uh, personal stuff and physical pain and back surgeries and all kinds of stuff. And he's like in his 40s, which is like ancient when you're in, on the golf tour, you know. Sorry, some of you guys at golf. I mean, if you're a competitive golfer, not, you know. Okay, I stepped in it. Okay, it's ancient when you're in golf, okay, for 40. The back just doesn't work the way it does. Those young guys, they're just like they're limber and boom. So here's the deal. Some people make this out about his forgiveness. They say, this is a lesson on forgiveness. I heard that and I thought, what? God's forgiveness is never contingent upon our performance. Like, he performed well, so now everybody's going to forgive him of all his past transgressions, all of his past misdeeds. No, God's forgiveness is never contingent upon my performance. It's always contingent upon his performance. It's what he did for me. Through Christ's death and resurrection, all who believe, all who believe, are forgiven. Free from the slavery, the domination of sin in this life and will live with him forever. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's the promise of Paul, the good news of the gospel. That's grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of my sin. It's not because of who I am, but because of what he's done. It's not because of what I've done, but it's because of who he is. And the same is true, can be true for you. Have you been rescued like Paul? Have you experienced the grace of God that came into your life and whatever the mess of it is, whatever the past mistakes are, that he is willing to forgive and income him into your life and change you into a new creature with power to live now? Please. The amazing thing then is he moves on to the rigor of the resurrection ministry. You see, God's grace doesn't just save us from our sins. It sustains us with new life. Notice what Paul said about himself. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. What, what do you mean? Empty, worthless. I trusted Christ and it made a difference in my life. And what was the difference it made in my life? I labored more than all of them. That's a pretty bold statement. I mean, Paul's saying that I'm, I'm, I've done more hard labor than all of the apostles. Whew. 
But you can read 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and you can see what he did. Paul's efforts were coupled with his, with God's enablement, though. He says, that not I, but the grace of God within me. See, here's the deal, folks. The resurrection not only brings salvation to us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But when we come to faith in Christ, we have begun the new life and his resurrection power comes to be within us, Paul said in Romans chapter 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the, glory of the, through the glory of the Father, we also, what, might walk in newness of life. It's the resurrection power within me. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but what happened? God caused the growth. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. That's Paul saying, yet not I, but the grace of God working in me. He says the same, similar thing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. We're not going to go there. He was the chief adversary of the, of the gospel. He became the chief advocate of the gospel. I just want to say, you know, if you're here this morning and you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have energy and power within you that is only matched by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's not me talking. That's the Bible. You can read it in Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 11. You can read it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's now. That's resurrection power to overcome sin. That's resurrection power. To face our fears. And I know some of you are afraid this morning. It's resurrection power to cope with our loneliness. It's resurrection power to assuage our, our doubts. To bring clarity where there's confusion. To bring unconditional love. Resurrection power to give generously, to endure hardship, to actually forgive those who've offended us. It's resurrection power that enables us to live the victorious Christian life. And then there's the result of resurrection proclamation. Notice how he closes in verse 11. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Whenever, whoever, however the gospel is preached... The resurrection is central to the most important message. So you believed. And that's the gospel that we proclaim this morning. Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. Not only to give you new life, but to give you power and energy to live the new life he gave you. And I just want to say this morning, have you accepted the gift so that this Resurrection Sunday you live in resurrection power. And that you have the promise that one day you'll be with Him. I say to you who are skeptics, or maybe you're, again you're here because I was told I was coming. Or I'm maybe a little skeptical, maybe it's not that bad, but I'm, I really don't want to be here. I want to say this, the message of good news was proclaimed and requires a resurrection. The material evidence 
testifies to the reality of the resurrection. And the miracle of Paul and every child of God is further evidence to its truthfulness. And so I ask you, what do you do with the evidence? No, I'm just going to dismiss it. Then you're not intellectually honest. You don't have to accept it, but you at least have to deal with it. And that would be my challenge for you this morning, is that you would consider that the only hope for you in deliverance and power to live this life is through the person and the work of Jesus who has risen from the dead and who lives his life in and through those who are trusting in him for their salvation. And if you're here this morning and, and, and you know Jesus, and you know what this message does? What Paul tells these people here and tells us gives us confidence in the truthfulness of our faith. We are not walking on thin air. The faith we hold is true. It gives us courage that I can live in resurrection power because I don't want to be kind to everybody. I don't want to share all the time. I don't want to forgive some people. But God in Christ working through me enables me to do by His grace what I cannot do otherwise. And I pray that his spirit would so fill me and pour through me that the attitudes and the actions of Jesus would spill over and overflow in my life. And it's the only way it happens. There's a certainty of our future, of heaven, and a motivation to share the gospel with a hurting world. Because look, folks, if there's no resurrection, there's no good news, but there is a resurrection, so it's the only good news. And as we come to break bread and, and drink this cup this morning, let us understand that the debt was settled. The debt of sin was settled and our destiny was secured through Christ's death and resurrection, which is what we celebrate when we break the bread and drink the cup. He was delivered up on account of our sins and raised in order to bring about our justification. In these symbols, what do we do? Paul says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes which means he's not dead because only if he's alive is he going to come again and so if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior then you have victory over sin and death through your faith in Christ and if you don't I just challenge you to lay it before God and say yeah okay I guess you died for my sins Uh, you were buried and you rose again and I confess it that I am a sinner and I trust you for dying on the cross for my sins I invite you, if you're a believer, to come as you feel led to break bread and drink the cup in celebration of a resurrection life. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the message that you give us from your word, the centrality and the importance of the resurrection for the gospel message. There is no resurrection, there's no good news, but I thank you so much that in the resurrection there is the only good news. And I pray that no one would leave here without settling their lives with you. And I pray that those of us who know you would rejoice and take this bread and drink this cup and be energized and encouraged and motivated to live our lives for you. We pray in Jesus' name.